This is Brain Fuzz, the art, music, and culture podcast with Joe Camusa and Matthew White. Joe and Matthew catch up on Joe's recent trip to Upstead, New York. They discuss mentorship, generativity, and the trouble with lace-up boots. Matthew offers the audio pick of the day along with multiple film picks. This is episode 27, part one of a two-part conversation. Got a lot of stuff today. I've got a lot of stuff in my bag. And you... We need a we need a brain fuzz coffee table. It looks like we do because I've max I've taken all the space up on this. We could have used the table. I want to say I am going to say one thing first. You and I have talked about getting in and out of Timberlands, right? I think we have, although I don't own them. But boots in general, you're talking about with. Laces. I'm okay with uh, boot. Oh That's yeah, yeah, yeah there right. But I, there's something. I need a shoehorn, and I was at my cobbler recently, <laughs> and. He had a selection of shoehorns, and I thought, I'll skip. I'll, I'll, I'll be back. Were they artisanal, like made <laughs> of like antler bone? And were they? Were like they all no. like? Oh come on! It has to be. No, 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 no. What are they? Steampunk kind of? There's there's a shop for Pont City Market right there. A cobbler? They have a cobbler no, there? No, just like oh. shoehorn, like high-end shoehorns, probably. <laughs> Are you not serious? I am serious. I can I think, so see it. I, depending on what lacing uh-huh. you use, I do have uh, one of my one of my pair of uh, boots is very... You basically have to unlace. Un, uh, yeah. Lace. Yeah. You have to unlace... The, these are just... They're, they're How awful. How Huh? How high do those come? They're not... I mean, they're... Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's just, and see, and I can't ever get the laces right. Don't wear them to the airport. That's one of those. Yeah, no, no, no. Halfway uh-huh. through the line, you're yeah. like, hey, buddy. I am going to get, I am, now that you mentioned the antler, uh, can you see? What is? I don't know. I just, <laughs> antler bone or, what's some aged, aged <clears throat> leather stirrup? They're, they're comfortable once you get in them, but you know that if something happens and you have to get out of them and you don't have your shoehorn. You've been busy lately. I have. Had a great trip to the uh, to upstate, actually, for yet another fabulous uh, New York family wedding, uh, which was just glorious this time of the year. But I was able to um, hit Bard into the lofty environs of uh, CCS, the uh, Center for Curatorial Studies. I mean, that is like ground zero. So their whole mission is uh, art since 1960. And you get into this structure, and you know you're not thinking it's that big, and it's uh, it packs a wallop in terms of space. Amazing uh, selection of uh, materials there and there, like bookshop slash. And then you get I got a sneak peek into their library, which I wanted to uh, crash, but I figured I'd get stun gunned or something. <laughs> um, anyway, pretty exhaustive exhibition there, um, curated by Walid Beshti, um, called uh, Picture Industry, and. I think you could spend weeks and still not digest all the wall text and all the imagery. And it's just, I'll spare you the, the conceit of the, of the exhibition, but I mean, just everything you can think about in terms of photography and process uh, and its mission throughout you know, the last 
I don't know, 150 years or something like that. I mean, in terms of how it's changed from either educational to, I mean, all points in between. But it just, like, you just turn a corner and here's another room and then another gallery off the... I mean, it just blew me away. And to think about, like, going to school there and having that, that's your on-campus museum. Just pop in there. There's coffee. They had espresso. Of course, they had ping pong. Did they really? Uh, They did. They did. Um, (laughs) And that was on one side. On the other side, there was an exhibition, uh, Islamic art. Mm-hmm. which I have to say I'm clearly deficient in. So, I mean, it just was one of those where you're not just taking a leisurely stroll through, uh, you know, the net and seeing the greatest hits, but uh, very impressive. Um, and I had no idea that that was so close to, uh, uh, you know, where we where we were, which was, you know, Rhinebeck, New York. So mm-hmm. it's all right, so close. You know, you got Woodstock, Bard, um, which uh, leads me to, again, one of the greatest uh, trips I've done in a long time, but on a nice uh, early fall, you know, kind of drizzly morning to drive down to Beacon for Dia. Mm-hmm. That place is absolutely just blew my mind. Old uh, Nabisco box factory, mm-hmm. and I guess was uh, designed or re- you know, redesigned uh, by Robert Irwin. So, because I noticed there's not many bulbs in that place, mostly natural lighting. So I was thinking, you know, like in that part of the country, you've got, I was thinking like Rothko Chapel, like, so what do you do on days when it's really yeah. dreary? Like, there's going to be some yeah. darker galleries. And I kind of had one of those time crunches, like, all right, I can't be late for, you know, a wedding in a couple hours. And you're just like, oh. it was like one of those get ready, get set, go. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Walter D. Maria, Dan Flavin, you name it. Um, what really blew me away was there was a bunch of Solowit, uh, like wall drawing, drawings that have been, you know, commissioned. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were so immersive that it's almost like you couldn't, it was almost too much, you know, in such, wow. a, in such a confined space. And the best part was, uh, as much as I wanted to photograph them, mm-hmm. you know, and send them to people, because I've yeah. used those in classes and stuff. They wasn't possible, like with the way the lighting was, yeah. and I thought, you know, that's actually took some pressure off. Cause like, you know, I'm just mm-hmm. going to take this in, that's like right. the old days, instead of like just walking around and being this documentarian yep. or something. It's like, no, just, yep. Um, which was cool, but anyway, there was just some, you know, uh, a treasure trove of, of artists in this in that space. Um, just Blinky Palermo, uh, Robert Ryman, Ann Truitt, uh, John Chamberlain, Richard Serra, of course. Um, if you're into that thing, Fred Sandback, which was all string. It's amazing mm-hmm. the volume that he could create. I mean, they might as well have been like hanging mirrors or, um, you know, some kind of uh, like acrylic or something. And it's just, it's just string. I say that, you know, but yeah. uh, masterful. Um, and some Richters that, you know, you don't normally see. These were his more sculptural, uh, mm-hmm. like the window mirrored. You know, that really worked in that space. I don't know. Again, yeah. like I said, it just was one of those that could spend a lot of time there. And uh, so we talked about Bard with uh, Sarah Higgins. Yeah, she's yeah, a uh, Can you imagine the, uh, like you said, having that museum at your disposal? Yeah, I think that place is uh, pretty pretty intense. But, it, you know, it's good to see, you know, obviously how Bard and... Uh, and Dia, Dia's the same thing. Like everything's pretty much post nineteen sixty. Mm-hmm. So obviously, uh, flying the flag of minimalism. Um, 
but you know, again, it's always nice to see different work yeah. from some of these artists instead of like, oh yeah, there's the yeah, there's the Rothko or the. Um, so yeah, uh, a nice, uh, nice excursion. You know, I thought about you and your trip when I watched the Meyerowitz stories on Netflix. Have you seen this I yet? I haven't. I want to. Okay, this this would be the film pick of the day. I couldn't believe how good this was. It's partially set at Bard. Oh, really? Yeah, it's a crazy story. So Dustin Hoffman, Ben Stiller, and I would say an unbelievably effective performance by Adam Sandler. I was impressed. But uh, so it's got different... You know, Dustin Hoffman is the aging artist steeped in the academic life who is kind of (laughs) looking back, questioning his success and so it's got interesting perspectives on creativity creative careers um and then wrestling with legacy and achievement and you know it's one of those movies like i know it's good because days later i found myself still thinking about bits of the dialogue and then still processing my thoughts on it but um like what comes to mind dialogue was when you see this movie they talk past each other. You've got to pay attention to the the dialogue, and I would go back and watch it again, actually, because it, it there really isn't much weakness in this movie. Brain um, fuzz homework. Okay, what's the name of it again? The Meyerowitz Stories, and I think it's a Netflix original. You know, you've got family dynamics there, and it's one of those comedies. It's a comedy, but it's a painful comedy. You know what I mean? It has those stinging moments, and, and but then it has these just that. Uh, subtle humor that I think I did laugh out loud maybe twice <laughs> you know but the rest of it is the um, but the, the there's a whole portion of it at Bard and it is it's just it's, it's, it's beautiful it's perfect and you know the dynamics there actually these are these are not unrelated to a conversation we had recently you brought this article to me, and I didn't have a chance to read it. And now that I've digested, it's Tony Berg, Quest for the Zeitgeist, from Tape Op Magazine. Set it up. Set it up, Joe. Uh, yeah, Tape Op is this kind of esoteric uh, magazine. It's for you know people that work in recording studios, in, in you know real geeky stuff about you know equipment and production and. Uh, but they have these great articles with people, like if you read liner notes, uh, like I do, um, you know, that are really, they're the, in a lot of cases, like the faceless, nameless folks that really make it all happen, you yeah. know, yeah. Mean, with performers. So the guy that started it, Larry Crane, for instance, uh, recorded Elliot Smith, uh, a lot of the early Elliot Smith stuff in Portland. Um, and he's been around forever. And uh, so Tony Berg is similar. And, um you know, you're thinking, here's somebody who has worked with everybody from Mitchell Froom to Michael Penn, uh, John Bryan, uh, T-Bone Burnett. Uh, Pajamas Andrew Bird, and scotch with T-Bone Burnett. And at it like 8 in the morning. And yeah. then here's the thing, and we'll get into this, I know, but like Jack Nietzsche was yeah. like his mentor. And, uh, yeah. and of course, Jack Nietzsche with Phil Spector, all the way to Neil Young, a long, fruitful partnership with Neil Young, like Harvest and that era. And I think what caught, you know, I flipped through that magazine. Um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the production stuff goes right over my head. But um, yeah. this one really, I, I brought it to you because I was thinking about 
the impact that this guy has had uh, in leading a creative life in terms of nurturing talent, mentoring, um, and still being like a totally driven type A. You know, he's still yeah. a business person. It's not just... But, you know, he talks about, like, you know, having Andrew Bird record, uh, you know, a record. Just like, well, here, you, you use the studio, like, when it's not in yeah. use for, like, a month. And you yeah. recorded, uh, what is it, the Mysterious Production of Eggs or whatever that, which is one of my favorite Andrew Bird records. And um, you, you, You've rattled off some names, but then your names, like, I listed other names. The Peter Gabriel part, the connection oh, yeah, with yeah. Peter Gabriel is unbelievable. Oh, the, Ry Cooter. Yeah, the replacements. I mean, this guy's been in the business forever Back. and ever. You know, and he's had his studio, what they say, like 30 years. And kind of when it was frowned upon by the big studios, when it was just their salad yeah. days, you know. So right. he kind of had his room as he did yeah. it. And it was more like a project space. Now, of course, everyone's flocking to the smaller yeah. and the big studios are clo- or have closed. But I don't know. I just thought, like... As, as you hinted at just a, just a moment ago, also Amy Mann. I've got a soft spot for Amy Mann. Yeah, yeah. Well, Michael Penn and Amy yeah. Mann are... I, uh, I want to have an Amy Mann tribute band. Not tribute cover, Amy Mann cover. Are you, like, dressing up? No, 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 no. Oh, I just not. want a chord. I just want a chord, because I don't, you know... Okay. She has great chording songs. Anyway, um, you were what really... You, you you mentioned the um, role that mentoring played in this, and yeah, I was struck by that as well. And I wonder, did you know? Was he as? I guess he's always mentorship has always been a has played a role in his. But I think you know, like like we have talked about this uh, offline, um, and you know I think a lot of people do it naturally, and it's not so like. You know, I'm going to be your mentor, or yeah. are you my mentor? Like that's get gets kind of hokey, but you just see how in today's parlance of like playing, paying it forward or whatever. Yeah. Like what Jack Nietzsche did for him and and others of uh-huh. giving him a chance to like, hey, sweep the floor, or, uh-huh. hey, you get to change the tape on the machine, and to see how many times that is, you know, you give back mm-hmm. to others, and I think there's there's a give and take. You know, people that are there at the right time, but that are hungry to help. And also, you know, I do think in any kind of successful exchange like that, there's, you know, the the mentee is still offering something besides just like hands and feet. Yeah, yeah. You know, whether it's also energy or another pair, you know, pair of eyes or ears. Um, you had asked me in our offline conversation, the yeah. direct, the, the kind of a direct question is like, have you have you had a mentor yeah. or have you, you ever been a mentor and and I immediately I was like no yeah, you were because of it. I, but the more I thought about it, it you don't know what role you play sometimes you're my mentor <laughs> you always have you, been you, know, you don't know what role you play sometimes um that's true. Hopefully, and, and, and it goes both ways. Unless you're an egomaniac, then you, you do. don't but know. You're right? Yeah. You're, if you're you don't honestly, know. How have you maybe been helpful? How have you encouraged someone and you didn't know it? And that's what I took when I read. Once I read this, I got a little bit more about what you were were saying because you don't know what you've done for people. It can be a simple gesture, you know, borrowing uh, equipment. You know. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I just I think a lot about that, and, and again, trying to get away from those those big. I don't like big titles on anything, and it is awkward. But um, and I think people can kind of come in and out of your life. But as I've said, like mm-hmm. there, you know, I won't name folks at the moment. But you know, there's at least three or four people 
that are directly responsible for me sitting in this room right now. I would not be here, you and, know, without. And uh, and that was, you know, those were unsolicited. That wasn't me, you know, cold calling or uh -huh. asking for uh -huh. help. That that's what's amazing to me. You I know, when there are those types that some somewhere somehow a relationship is forged that um, you know is the at the right you know a hand at the right time so yeah. to speak mm -hmm. and then people that like even some folks that we've interviewed uh, on the show that you know are continued uh, sources of uh, you know inspiration education mm -hmm. etc mm -hmm. and um, you know and again I think any light in any kind of arts since they're really aren't any rules after a certain point, you know, besides mm -hmm. like formal stuff, like, you know, how, how do you navigate? How do you motivate? Yeah. You know, which is a constant thread for us. Mm -hmm. um, it's like, great. Now you've got the, you know, here we are. It's a beautiful day. It's uh, it's a nice sunny morning, a fall morning. And here we are in the studio and it's like, what sky's the limit. What are you going to do? Mm -hmm. And I, I still think that's, uh, Oh, it's a, quite a blessing and I think for a lot of people it also can be like a moment of extreme panic like oh now what like why why do people lose it on residencies you know like suddenly like all yeah. that build up yeah. oh man when yeah. I'm up there I'm going to finish the novel or finish yep. the and then it's just yep and this guy is you know productive and successful like uh, in terms of not necessarily the numbers but in terms of the artists that he's working with and uh you know the end. I hate to say product, the end result. And I'm like, how do you how do you maintain that? And I'm thinking because there's got to be this buzz of surrounding yourself with good people. Yeah. Which I'm like, okay, you know, um, how, how do you do that? I, f I feel like in the arts, especially people, you know, there's a lot of coming and going. He he talks in this article about signing Beck and and then and then the moment that Peter Gabriel. Peter Gabriel um, was watching him work from another, from a window somehow. And then he calls him up months later and says, you know, I was watching you. Which, oh, yeah. He was, yeah. he was working at Peter Gabriel's studio, right? That was the uh, thing. He wanted to, I think he, <laughs> you know, I was watching you. That's creepy. Yeah, so he was. He was recording at Real World. It turns out the big control room at Real World has this massive wall with 30 feet. There's a little tiny door. And he was doing a squeeze album. Oh yeah, Frank. And, and he says, "I really." So Peter Gabriel calls. I really liked how you worked, and I'm starting something called Real World Week. Would you be interested in joining us and producing records? And so, you know, it's it's funny how I guess you can use that phrase, it, mentorship and collaboration, and it all kind of weaves in and out sometimes, but. Um, yeah, you know, I thought about when when you said mentorship, I, I had, I was thinking like almost like capital M mentor, mm -hmm. and um, I, I was wondering like, well, okay, what about that though? Is like, why is that? Why do people find it so rewarding? It typically, you kind of see it in this as 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 you get uh, later in life, uh, it becomes more and more important. And it's that sense of kind of giving something back. And I had to go back to a book I read recently called Life Reimagined, The Science, Art, and Opportunity of Midlife by Barbara Bradley Haggerty. And it has some stuff about uh, neuroplasticity and mm -hmm. things that I've been interested in. And that's one of the reasons I picked, picked this book up. But 
I went straight to this um, this bit um, about generativity. Eric Erickson, the groundbreaking psychologist, and I'm reading from Life Reimagined, believed that there were eight stages in a person's development. The seventh stage, generativity, is the hallmark of a healthy middle age. When we stop focusing on acquiring family, home, career, and financial assets and begin to invest outward into the next generation or the community or a cause. So it doesn't just have to be someone older taking, <laughs> taking right. someone younger under the wing. Um, it, there's just a fine line to me between the, between the mentorship and the collaboration in, in a lot of these. I agree. I don't think it's just a, quote, midlife thing. I mean, no, I it's not. It, I think it, you know. It becomes more important as you get older, I think. Uh, maybe. I, it's, there's something about sharing, you know, the, the hard-earned wisdom, especially if it's, uh, you know, wanted. Yeah. You know, that, that's the thing for me. I'm always just want to make sure, like, am I just pontificating? And someone's like, yeah, thanks for that. Or is it a good <laughs> yeah. conversation? Because you don't want yeah. to be that. Right. No, no, no. You know, no, no. I, I, <laughs> just like, unsolicited. Yeah. Please don't, you know, I'll start wearing tall black socks and shorts. And that is... Uh, emoting. So the audio pick of the day is actually going to pull in some of this. All right. About the dynamic of uh, mentorship and collaboration. But first... A note from the Rand Corporation. But first... But first, I've got to say a word about ArtsTie. ArtsTie.com provides the largest jobs and career resource site for jobs in the arts. Now, you and I both know, we all know, that if you have a job in the arts or are considering a career in the arts, uh, arts administration, for example, it can be a very difficult field to navigate. And I think we've all found that the traditional job sites, they just uh, don't, don't do it justice. Uh, but the people at ArtsTie understand this. And they've created the uh, perfect destination, whether you're looking to post jobs or you want job alerts. Maybe you're just curious what's out there. You should check it out. Visit artstie.com. That's artstie, A-R-T-S-T-I-E.com. And now, the Brain Fuzz audio pick of the day. I gave you a hint by text. Do you do you know what it is? No, I don't think so. Fela Kuti and the Africa Seventy with Ginger Baker live. Wow. Yeah, this was released in 1971. Is this after his Ginger Baker's Air Force, or is this lead into it? it okay, so he had he had uh, he was at this point the ex Cream drummer. And I think he had just finished up with Blind Faith, or he was in the middle of, with well, Blind, Blind Faith. It was one record. Yeah, right. Um, Which he barged into. <laughs> they um, And Eric Clapton was like, oh. Well, the weird thing about this is... So, I, don't, I'm, I think you know about Ginger Baker's interest in... And in he travels down with Fela to... Um, in a Land Rover. Yeah. To Lagos. Lagos. Didn't he move there? Yes. yes, yes, he did. And then somehow they get back up to 
let's see, I think Fela records in America and then comes back through London and, and Ginger Baker sets him up at all these different clubs. And then they get the live recording, which by live, they mean they squeezed into Abbey Road Studios and recorded, all of them squeeze in and record this, you know, in a sitting. So as a result, you get this phenomenal sound capturing the blend of funk. You get the funk rhythm, jazz, soul, uh, the African music. Um, and Baker's contribution is, you know, probably most in making it happen. It's not, um, sure, you know, he's, he's playing with Tony Allen, but you... That blend is unbelievable. The percussion in this, and and it, so it captures a moment in what I would say the pioneering of Afrobeat. So the, the Afrobeat is even more stark in the later Fela recordings. But um, you know, it's difficult. It's difficult to choose one album, and and I didn't want to do that. This somehow just gets a perfect moment. What do you know about Fela? Not whole, just from Ginger Baker, so, yeah. Okay, so human rights activist um, protesting against the Nigerian government. There is an unbelievable story there. You can put some of it together with, uh, there's a documentary from 1982, Fela, Music is the Weapon. It's a heartbreaking story. And at the same time, he also has critics, criticized as a misogynist because of the polygamy and and then you know accusations of um abuse but you know that probably stemmed from trauma and abuse in his own life and being anywhere near ginger baker <laughs> well that's the thing so ginger so the only way that ginger that ginger baker thrived in that environment well, because he was crazy enough to be able to hold his own so go to, to your earlier point he goes and sets up a studio in lagos uh solely based on his love of the music yeah and I guess the culture and the environment. All right. So about that time, it's getting, it's getting you know, Paul McCartney picks up on it being popular. And he decides, hey, you know, let's take Wings and go to uh, Band on the Run, right? And so he's in his mind, though, he's thinking a little more paradise than... Right. Yeah. So, so Ginger Baker has a studio. EMI is building a studio. He goes to record at EMI. And it's a tough, it's a tough go. He gets robbed at knife point, for example. Oh yeah, on the beach, right? With Linda. Yeah, and Linda said, "No, it's Beetle Paul. This is Beetle Paul," and that didn't, that didn't, you know. And so he go, they go to uh, Fela's club, which is the Shrine, I believe. And Fela accuses them of coming to steal the music. So, just to kind of smooth things over, over with Fela, partly I believe. He agrees to record at Baker Studio. And I didn't know this, Picasso's last words from Band on the Run is recorded at Ginger Baker Studio. And Baker contributed that little, like, sound in Picasso's last words. That's like, is that crazy? I did not know that. But if this is getting back to the audio pick. I think that this this kind of documents that moment of just craziness. <laughs> and it is an unbelievable experience to hear this. And it is available on vinyl now. What's interesting is the reissue has an extra um, a bonus track, which is 
taken from Ginger Baker and Tony Allen playing in 1978. Just the two of them. It is just a monster drum performance. Uh, is this one disc or two? One. So you've seen the, the Baker documentary, though. That's what I was going to say. Beware of Mr. Baker. There it is. Yeah. And you, so... Wow. <laughs> just a document of the lunacy. But it also captures the passion for the music. Yeah, yeah it kind of goes back and forth. I mean, you, you, how do you... He's not a likable person. No. No. I don't care if it was, but... But he... And, and that's one of the reasons he was able to survive in that environment. He was just so hard. Just pure, yeah. But but with it, so with a drum. Let me ask you this: with a drum history, what do you think about? Oh, I think he's amazing. Because I always hear I don't I, I don't I don't have a grasp on the technical aspect of it as as well as I would other instruments. But he, I hear that it's almost godlike for some people. Well, I mean, Eric Clapton. You know, obviously has a mixed or a, yeah. a, an interesting relationship with him, but he even was saying like, "Yeah, there's no real comparison as a musician." Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I think he's a tremendous drummer and percussionist, which is a totally different level. I mean, a lot of people can play drums. I can That's play true. drums. I am not a percussionist. That's you know? true. Um, I think he's a very musical person. And when you start talking about rhythm, especially nowadays, where you know everything, most of what we hear is recorded with a click track, you know, instead of yeah. the drummer being the machine. Yeah. Um, I just think when I think of Ginger Baker, I probably will focus more on like his performance on um, "I Can't Find My Way Home." Yeah. Which is subtle and interesting, and those great like hand cymbal crashes. You know, much different sound versus like his real bombastic. You know, and I I, I love Keith Moon as well, mm-hmm. but I mean, like, there's there's all these different facets. Um, is that seventy one or is that it's like sixty nine? Blind face. Yeah, I refuse to use my phone to look that up. Anyway, but uh, you know, you're thinking people were going for power, and I mean, that's, that's right. honestly after Cream and the Power Trio. So that is right. It's very interesting sometimes just to hear, like, obviously his jazz roots were really showing there. Well, you see, with um with this recording, how he was able to, in such a short period, jump into and be accepted in that culture. I think that's the thing that I keep coming back to, that you could fall in. I think you, you hit it on the head, though, where like he wasn't taking no for an answer. He was that strong of a personality and fearless. Fearless or crazy, I don't know. It's a little bit of both. By the way, the Blind Faith release date was August the 1st, 1969. So by this point, he was... X cream and X blind faith. Wow. Uh, beware of Mr. Baker. We threw a lot at, at, at we threw a lot out there. Beware of Mr. I think Baker. They should send you some royalties. All of this. It's going to probably, it's going to move some units, man. <laughs> All of it. It is available on vinyl, which I, um, how old is your It's copy? on Spotify. Is it new or, or do you have a, I've been listening to it on Spotify and I've got the vinyl on the way. Ah, okay. Oh. And it's, um, for a while, I had trouble putting together. This is one of those situations where I think, you know, Fela had, what, 70, I want to say something like 70 albums. Oh, wow. One of those. 60. Of well, it, but but you, you don't know. Yeah, you got compilations, you got this, yeah. you got that. And so I was, I, for a long time, for a long time, I had listened to a compilation that I had. And that was kind of my, so a re- recent conversation made me go back 
and kind of start from the beginning and look at the actual releases. And then you got staggered, just like Sunrise, you have those staggered. So you don't know what's the intent here. Sounds like you need to get a CD burning operation going and hit our man in South Georgia. Yeah, yeah. I've got a little something for him. It's on the way to him, by the way. Um, Yeah. Show notes at brainfuzzpodcast.com. All of the uh, stuff we talked about, much of the stuff we talked about. Even more. And more. (laughs) Lean there. So that's brainfuzzpodcast.com. On social media, hashtag BrainFuzzPodcast. On whatever platform you're listening, be sure to like us, subscribe, comment, reach out. Go to BrainFuzzPodcast.com and uh, we look forward to hearing from you. Did you have anything else? Oh, I have a half page stuff, but I don't know. Let's keep going. All right. Connect with Joe and Matthew and find out more about this and other episodes at BrainFuzzPodcast.com. On social media, share your thoughts and comments with hashtag BrainFuzzPodcast. Now, lace up those boots and get ready for part two.